All right, Psalm, there it is, 115, the title of my sermon, Beware of Idols. Beware of Idols. Here's the big idea, and here's what we see in our passage. Only the Lord can save and satisfy. That is the diagnostic question, okay? Can what you give your life to, can what you treasure most save you and satisfy you? And if the answer is no, then obviously Jesus is not Lord of your life because He is the only one that can save and satisfy. Amen? So only the Lord can save and satisfy. Um, Let's read our passage. Psalm 115. Man, this is so good. Listen up. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. Now he's talking about the nations. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. This is almost comical. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. And all God's people said, praise the Lord and amen. All right, um, wow, it's been a while since we've been in the Psalms, and here we are, Psalm 115. We still have, I think, I looked at my schedule, five more weeks in the Psalms, and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do after that. I may go back and look at some other Psalms, or I may jump into Proverbs. We'll see. Um, We're not there yet. This Psalm, what type is it? It is called a Psalm of Communal Confidence, and here's what one brother writes. The psalms of communal confidence convey a sense of need as well as a deep trust in the Lord's ability to take care of the needs of the people. <laughs> the idea is God's got us. God's got us. Okay, that, that is the sense of these types of psalms. We can say together, the Lord has us. The Lord has us. He's with us. He's for us. He's sovereign. He's got us. I, uh, I used to say this in Washington when I was a pastor there. I would say it's good to be got by God. And I had two older women in the church who actually made me shirts with that on it. Isn't that funny? And they didn't like come together and they just each decided, you know, Chris says that a lot. And they both gave me shirts. It's good to be got or had. It just sounds better. It's good to be got. A little alliteration by God. Um, let's talk about worship. What is it? Where it comes from? What's gone wrong? Okay, um, 
at the heart of our worship, at the heart of any worship, is confidence. Confidence or trust in the particular object of worship to save and satisfy. Worship is believing that the particular object that you've tied your heart to can save and satisfy you. It's believing that what you treasure most can give your life true meaning and fulfillment. Again, the question, can it save? Can it satisfy? Can what you've tied your heart to, can what, whatever it is, is sitting on the throne of your heart, can it save you? Can it satisfy you? Those two questions should be asked of whatever you've chosen to build your life upon. This is the proper test to, I guess, to demonstrate and determine both the viability and the veracity of who or what you worship. Can what you've built your life upon, that which you live for, uh, that which you serve, that which you pursue, that which you praise, can it save you? Can it satisfy you? Now, we need to start with the basic truth. We all worship something. All humans are worshipers. It's true. That is really the common denominator of humanity. We all worship something because we were made to worship. We were created to worship. That is our most fundamental vocation as human beings. We were made to worship. But of course, something's gone wrong because not all humans are worshiping the one true God. It's true. So something's gone horribly wrong, which we'll come to shortly. But we were created to worship, and at the fall, what happened at the fall? Mankind, Adam and Eve, chose to go their way rather than God's way. They chose to worship something else rather than the one true God. And this failure to worship rightly is at the heart of mankind's greatest woes and disappointments. Mankind, and this is really, Augustine said it better, um, but mankind is not satisfied when they're found not doing what they were made to do. And what were we made to do? Worship God. And so when we're not worshiping God, we're not going to be satisfied. There's a, what is that noise? You guys hear that? Okay. Oh, it's upstairs. Okay. I was like, man. Oh, chairs. Okay. I was like, is somebody like, eh? We were made to worship God, and when we're not doing that, we will not be satisfied. So many illustrations came to mind, but no time. To worship anything other than the one true God, that the God revealed... In Christ, the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to worship anything other than that God is to abandon your creative purpose. This represents the greatest betrayal. It's idolatry. It's missing the mark. Now, would we agree that worship is powerful? Worship is transformative because what you worship, whatever it is, it has the power to transform you, right? Really, uh, the big idea of Psalm 115, I hope you heard it in the middle, you become, we become like what we worship. Did you hear the indictment to the nations? Hey, you guys worship these dead, lifeless idols. They have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, feet but they can't walk, and you who make them and you who worship them become just like them. You're dead and you're dumb, <laughs> right? You become like what you worship. Worship's powerful because, again, what you worship, you become like. Nothing will affect you more. Nothing will influence you more. Nothing will transform you more than what you worship. 
And although idols are powerful, and we've all had idols, although idols are powerful, there's only one thing, one person that can truly transform us from the inside out. And who's that? It's God. The one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. What we have to realize is that idols, whatever your idols are, they make grandiose promises, but they can never fulfill those promises, right? They can never make good on what they say they'll do. They can't deliver. Only the one true God can do that. And again, what are the two questions? Can it save? Can it satisfy? And if it's not Jesus, what's the answer? No, no. So again, our passage, Psalm 115 addresses two things. The object of our worship and the object's ability to act. Okay, so everybody say object and ability. Object and ability. Again, does what you worship have the power to save and satisfy? Um, Let's talk about the background here. Where did this psalm come from? What was happening when Psalm 115 was written down? What, what event or set of circumstances gave rise to Psalm 115? It would appear, just if you read it one time, right? I mean, you don't have to study it in depth. If you read it one time, it would appear that the people of God are in dire straits. They're surrounded by enemy nations. Their, their back is against the wall. And they're calling out to God confidently for help. That's verse 1. They're concerned with His glory, <laughs> We could deduce from verse 2 that the nations are mocking God's people. Did you you hear it? Why should the nations say, hey, where is your God? Where is He? Where's your God? Where where is He now? Who's going to help you? The true worshiping community is concerned for God's reputation, and yet they are confident in God's ability to intervene. And what grounds their confidence? Verse 1 provides the key. Verse 1, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God is faithful to act on his saving promises. He's faithful. Amen? He's faithful. His faithfulness grounds the confidence of his people. Next, the, the psalmist highlights the groundless hopes of the enemy nations by pulling back the curtain. He takes, let me see, um, one, two, three, four. Five verses to do this. He pulls back the curtain to reveal their gods for what they are. And what are they? The gods of the surrounding nations who are mocking God and his people. What are they? They're statues. They're lifeless statues. And what can lifeless statues do? Nothing. (laughs) What can idols do? Nothing. Nothing. They're, They're idols made by human hands and nothing more. Later on in the Psalms, this is really funny, we're going to see that the same piece of wood, right, that is used to carve an idol is used to make the fire that the carver kind of warms himself by. Isn't that funny? You bow down to it, and then you burn it to keep yourself warm. The same piece of wood. That's foolish. This is also, though, a warning for God's people to avoid the temptation to look where the nations look. Because again, you got to remember, Israel was called to be what? Set apart. Don't be like the nations. But what happens, sadly, tragically? Instead of being a light, instead of pointing the nations to the one true God, they become like the nations. They end up bowing down to the nation's false gods. 
The psalmist is saying, don't be like the surrounding nations and look to man-made objects for salvation. Look to the one true God, the creator, the savior. What we see then, here's what we see. Here's the big picture. It's a comparison between the one true God and the idols, the false gods of the surrounding nations. And again, this comparison is meant to strengthen the confidence of God's people and even us today. So where do you go? This is a personal question. Where do you go when your back is against the wall? When trouble and suffering come, where do you look? And not not just the extremes, but in the day-to-day, where do you look for meaning and satisfaction, for joy and peace? Can the object you fixed your heart upon truly save and satisfy you? Well, like every psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 115 is about who? Who's it about? Every psalm is about God. And here's what Psalm 115 teaches us about God. Four things. Number one, and these are my points, and these are in your notes. You don't have to fill them in now because we'll take them one at a time, but here's kind of a preview of where we're headed. Number one, who he is. Who is this God? Number two, the utter foolishness of not worshiping him. Number three, what he does. And number four, I'm glad we're ending with this, what he demands. Who he is, the utter foolishness of not worshiping him, what he does, and number four, what he demands. Number one, who he is. And this is verses 1, 3, and 15. Verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Number three, verse three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. So what can we deduce about God from those three verses? This psalm answers the question, who is he? Who is God? Well, first, he's faithful. He's faithful. That's verse 1. Second, he's sovereign, verse 3. And verse 15, he's all-powerful. So what do we learn about God? In Psalm 115, he's faithful, he's sovereign, and he's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He's the creator. And this must be read alongside verses 4 to 8. Because, again, what do the idols of the nations do? Nothing, because they're what? Creation. But the God of Israel, our God, is the creator. So this psalm is primarily about making a comparison between the one true God and the lifeless idols of the pagans. And I want us to apply this same comparison today. Ask this of your object of worship, is it faithful? Is it sovereign? Is it all-powerful? And if the answer is not Jesus, then the answer is what? It's no, no, because only Jesus is what? Only Jesus is faithful, sovereign, and all-powerful. Let's take these one at a time quickly. Again, the first point is who he is. And what is he? Faithful, sovereign, and he's all-powerful. The Lord is faithful. Verse 1, when you have this complete picture of God painted in the Bible, it makes our idol worship look so foolish, right? How dare we bow down to something else when God alone is faithful, sovereign, and all-powerful? Do you think we need to be reminded of these truths? I know I do. The Lord's faithful, which means what? He acts on his promises. God's track record is perfect. And this can be said of no one else or nothing else. 
Second, the Lord is sovereign. That's verse 3. <laughs> Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does what he wants to do. Why? Because he's in control. Can we say that? No, of course not. We're limited. He's sovereign. We're not. He's infinite. We are finite. You can't handle God. It's like that quote from the movie, uh, A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle God. What I mean by that is this. You can't put him in a temple. You can't manipulate him. The gods of the pagans, I mean, they fashioned them with their hands. They, they placed them where they wanted to. They controlled their gods. Can we control God? Of course not. He can't control them. Our God is in the heavens. Now, at first glance, you might think, well, he's up in the sky. But the Hebrew word shemayim, this is God's heavenly realm. God's dwelling place where his will is perfectly done. This is where God rules as supreme. This is a picture of God as king. There's only one king, amen? There's only one sovereign Lord. And if you're not worshiping him, then you're engaged in what? Idolatry. He does all that he pleases. So, again, our God is in the heavens. Of course, when Jesus taught us how to pray, I believe he had Psalm 115 in mind. Our Father who art in heaven. That is a picture of God's sovereignty. God is king. He rules over all. He does all that he pleases. Whatever he desires or wishes to do, he'll do. <laughs> his will shall be done, and nothing can thwart his will. Amen? Again, we see the same language in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will is supreme, right? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases because his will is supreme. The idols of the nations. I'm going to be going back and forth a lot. Okay, so here's the picture of God. Remember verses 4 to 8, right? The idols of the nations are lifeless. They're bound by space and time. They can be manipulated. They are at the mercy of those who make them. Isn't that insane? <laughs> this is the very opposite of the one true God. He is alive. He is king. He's sovereign. He cannot be contained. We are at his mercy. And then lastly here, again, Point number one, who he is, he's faithful, he's sovereign. Number three, he's all-powerful. Verse 15, may ye be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The idols of the nations are the work of human hands. They're carved from stone. And this is the irony of idol worship. You end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Man, to, to worship creation is to worship something that is either on your level, which could be another human, or subhuman, a created object. Humanity was not created to worship creation, but the, the creator. So hopefully now we're beginning to see how foolish the worship of anything other than the one true God really is. And this brings us to point number two. Number two, the utter foolishness of not worshiping him. Who is he? He's faithful, sovereign, all-powerful. Is there anyone like our God? Say it in Spanish. No, no. And that brings us into the second point, which is the utter foolishness of not worshiping him. What is the psalmist seeking to do? He's seeking to paint a clear, beautiful picture of God that makes you say, wow, he is worthy of my life because he's faithful, sovereign, and all-powerful. Oh, and then you have those idols. <laughs> and how are they described? Verses 
You've got to read verses 4 to 8 again. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. That should be a red flag right away. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. I think it's in Isaiah where, right, Daniel, in Isaiah, where he talks about from the same piece of wood, right? He warms himself by the fire from that wood, but also, you know, uses the rest to carve a deity. How crazy is that? So what are we meant to see here in verses 4 to 8? The idols of the nations are powerless to do anything. Again, this passage addresses two things, the object of worship and the object's ability to act. The psalmist's main point in verses 4 to 8 is that idols can do nothing, nothing to save, nothing to satisfy. Why is that? Why can't our idols do that? Because creation was never meant to be the end, but the means. Creation's good, amen? But it was never meant to be the end, but the means to the end. Let me explain. There's a great book I recommend. One of the most quoted books, if you've heard me preach for a while now, it's a book by Paul Tripp, called Awe, A-W-E, like, wow, Awe. It's a great book on worship. And this is from Awe. It's an ugly yellow book, but it's great, substantial, great content. Don't judge a book by its cover, um, but this book is really fantastic. In this book, he writes, every awesome thing in creation is designed to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching and hungry heart. Probably wouldn't have used awesome there, but we'll give him a pass. Because I only use awesome to describe who? God, God yeah. This is the psalmist's point in Psalm 19.1. What, is, what does the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Now, listen, I live way out in the country. I love going outside at night and looking up at the sky. I and mean, what do you see on a clear night in East Texas if you're out in the country? Stars, millions and billions of stars. I've counted them, I'm just kidding. Can't count them. <laughs> but it's, I mean, the, the beautiful, and, and what, I mean, what, what should be our sense when we see this beautiful sky or a full moon like tonight? We should be what? Wow. But should it stop there? No. What is the point of that wow? Who should that point us to? It's not the end, but the means to the end. It reminds the creation, the glorious Creation is meant to point us to the glorious creator. We don't worship the sky, but the one who made the sky. Amen? We don't worship other humans, but the one who made all humanity. Again, creation is a pointer to the creator. That's what creation was intended to do. To worship the creation is to miss their creative intention, their creative purpose. Creation's job is to point us to the creator. One more thing about this book by Paul Tripp, Awe, A-W-E. He talks about misplaced awe. It's so good. Mis- and I'm, I'm summarizing here. Misplaced awe or wonder or wowness is looking to anyone or anything else other than God for satisfaction, fulfillment, 
peace and joy. And again, we begin with the question, who alone can satisfy and save us? Only, only God, only God. So the psalmist is warning God's people to not place their confidence in lifeless idols, the lifeless idols of the surrounding nations. The psalmist wants his readers and us to see the utter foolishness of idol worship. They're simply worshiping what their hands have made. How crazy is that? There's nothing more inhuman than idol worship. Again, this represents the greatest tragedy of humanity. And not only is the act itself a tragedy, but so are the consequences. And that's verse 8. Those who make them become like them. That's a warning. What are they? They're dead. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And this is the main point. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Remember, we were made in whose image? God's image. Our purpose is to reflect God, to align our lives with Him. And this happens when we worship Him. We were created to worship Him. And all of creation shares this same purpose. Therefore, to worship anyone or anything else other than God is to reject our created purpose. Because in doing this, we will no longer be reflecting who? God. What we turn our hearts to, we reflect. And so the question is, who or what has your heart? (laughs) Who or what has your heart? Now, this is a good question to ask. How might we identify what our object of worship truly is? It's quite simple. Who or what do you resemble? Do you look more like the world or do you look more like God? Because again, you become what you worship, right? That's the point of this psalm. For example, if you worship money or if you know someone who worships money wealth, it's seen in all that you do. You wear it, you talk about it nonstop, you go to bed thinking about it, you flaunt it. It becomes your identity. If it's taken away, your life crumbles, right? I had another example, but my son's here, so. (laughs) On the other hand, we become more like God by trusting in who? Trusting in Jesus, following him, making our lives subject to him as king. Trusting in Jesus results in conformity to who? Jesus. We become more like him, which is God's goal for his people. Again, whatever you bow the knee to, you become like. So what's at stake here? Everything. The result or consequences of worshiping anyone or anything other than God is spiritual death. One commentator writes, those who trust in idols become, like them, lifeless and useless. I mean, who wakes up saying, you know what? I really want my life to be lifeless and useless. Nobody. But that is your end. That is your trajectory if Jesus is not king over your heart. Amen? Maybe you've been thinking, Chris, Romans 1. Hey, good thought. Let's go there now. Because we see the application of this, these horrendous consequences in Romans 1. I'm going to tease this out a little bit, so bear with me. So Romans 1, 22 to 27. Again, what we worship has consequences. It's true? 
You worship idols, you become dead, lifeless, useless. You worship the one true God, you're alive and you're becoming more like Christ. Romans 1, 22-27. Claiming, and here he's talking about the pagans. The pagans. Those who don't worship the one true God. They worship idols. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They're worshiping idols. Therefore, here's the consequence. Here's the result. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's tragic. We all know people like that. That was us before Christ. Amen? For this reason, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Listen, this is so relevant for today. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Listen to this. When we get the vertical wrong, it affects the horizontal. When we get the vertical wrong, it affects the horizontal. The rejection of our created purpose results in the perversion of our hearts. To reject humanity's most honorable purpose results in the pursuit of dishonorable passions. More time. To reject humanity's most honorable purpose, which is to worship God in Him alone, results in the pursuit of dishonorable passions. When you get this wrong, everything else is turned upside down. That's the point of Romans 1. Who or what we worship affects everything else. Is true? How does Psalm 115 point to Christ in the gospel? Well, hopefully, <laughs> you would say, We need help, right? We need divine help. We need help outside of ourselves. We need divine intervention. We need to be made alive because think of it this way. Do we naturally come into this world worshiping God? No, we, as Calvin said very eloquently, our hearts are idol factories, right? We we are idolaters and adulterers, but we are idolaters. We love idols. We choose them over God. That, that is our natural tendency. And, and what do we learn about idol worshipers? They are D-E-A-D. They're dead. So what do we need? We need to be made alive. <laughs> we need to be made spiritually alive. And that's what the gospel does. Amen? What does Paul say in Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Christ came. This is the good news. Christ came to restore our creative purpose by living it out perfectly as the true man and true image bearer, paying the penalty for our sin and breaking the curse of sin and death through his death and resurrection. The Spirit makes us alive through the hearing of the gospel to trust in Jesus. And only by trusting in Jesus can we become true worshipers. John 4. I had a few more passages I wanted to read, but again, time. In John 4, Jesus enters into a conversation 
with a Samaritan woman. This is very taboo. And this woman, she had as her object of worship the world, and more specifically relationships with men, right? sexual promiscuity. And it's obvious that this object is not able to save or satisfy her because she's had, at this point, many husbands. She's still searching, right? What's the song? I sang this a couple weeks ago. I can't get no satisfaction. That's the Rolling Stones. They're on to something. Apart from Christ, we'll never have satisfaction. Is true? Listen to what Jesus says in John 4.23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. I hope and pray the Lord tarries. Um, I, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of those things where I, I want more than anything for Christ to come back. But I also have a lot of people that I love that are not right with the Lord. And there's a lot of Bible that I want to keep preaching. And so if the Lord tarries, we'll be in John's gospel very soon. And by very soon, I mean within the next year. So I look forward to that. I hope you do as well. Jesus is saying in John 4.23, my presence means, I mean, when Jesus came, it changed everything. Amen? My presence means that the time of true worship is being restored. Come to me, trust in me, and become a true worshiper of God. Jesus came to restore our vocation as true worshipers. By nature, we are idol worshipers. Jesus lived the life we could not live. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He rose again, breaking the curse. And in Him, our true vocation is restored. We become true worshipers. Amen? No, amen. Okay, one. Thank you, brother. In Psalm, to worship anyone or anything other than God is to be inhuman. Do you know that if you're worshiping idols, you're actually becoming less human? Only by trusting in Jesus and becoming a true worshiper of God can we truly become human. I'm going to talk about this on Sunday. We were made to worship, specifically God. That's what it means to be human. Amen? And so we're not truly human unless we're doing what we're called and made to do. So only in Christ, the true man, and I would say, and we would say together, the God-man. But again, Jesus shows us what it means to be truly human. And only in him is our vocation as a true worshiper of God restored. So again, in sum, to worship anyone or anything other than God is to be inhuman. Now, before moving on to our next point, I want to make one more observation from this passage. Verse 5, they have mouths, but what? The idols. They got mouths, and you can see them drawn or carved, but what do the mouths do? They don't do anything. They don't speak. What's a mouth good for? Speaking. But their mouth can do no such thing. <laughs> What's the point of that? What sets the God of the Bible apart is that he what? And when he speaks what? Things happen. Life happens. Let there be light, and there was light. Oh, God's not only does God speak, I mean, that alone is wonderful. I mean, we, we have access to his words, amen? But his word is life-giving. Somebody said, man, does what you bow the knee to have the power to give life? 
What are the two questions? Can what you bow the knee to save and satisfy? I think of 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. I shared it with a brother earlier today. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. That's what God does through His Word. There's no one like our God. That's what we're meant to see in this passage. There's no one like our God. Amen? No one comes close. Nothing comes close. God's Word gives wisdom. It instructs, it comforts, it gives life. Number three, what he does. Who he is, the foolishness of not worshiping him. Number two, number three, what he does. We've got time. Verses 9 to 17. Again, let me step back. What the psalmist wants us to see. He's making a comparison between the worthless idols of the nations, and the one true God. And he wants us to see how awesome God is. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives. What did we learn in point one? He's faithful, sovereign, and all-powerful. The third point is what he does. What does this God who is faithful, sovereign, and all-powerful do? And that's verses 9 to 17. Three things here. He fights for and protects us, number one. He blesses us, number two. He gives us an inheritance. I'm really excited right now. Are you guys seeing this? How cool this is? Dead, lifeless idols worship them, and you become dead and useless just like them. They can do nothing for you. But God, who is faithful, sovereign, all-powerful, what does he do? He fights for and protects us. He blesses us. He gives us an inheritance. Do we deserve any such thing? Maybe you think you do, but I know I don't. Let's take these one at a time, quickly. He fights for and protects us. Three times, anytime there's repetition in Scripture, it's for emphasis, so pay attention. Three times in verses 9 to 11, we have the phrase, He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. shield. What does this mean? The Lord fights for us. He is with us. He protects us. He is concern for us. And God demonstrates this throughout the scriptures. I think of the Exodus. I think of David and Goliath. I think of the cross. Secondly, he blesses us. Do we deserve any such blessing? Now, before you answer, what is yours and mine, our natural place, our natural desire, our natural vocation? We are idol worshipers, right? Do we deserve God's blessing? No, we deserve his wrath. But those he saves and rescues, he blesses. Verses 12 and 13, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. The Lord blesses us because of his promises. He gives us good things. He is generous. Note the phrase, the Lord has remembered. God doesn't forget. That's covenant language. That that just means that God is acting on his promises. The promise to Abraham, this is helpful, looked forward to the three P's. What are the three P's of the Abrahamic covenant? A people, a place, and God's presence. A people, a great people, right? A place, a really good place, and God's presence. And Without his presence, the, the people in the place mean nothing, right? What, what makes the people in the present or the people in the place so great? It's God being present with his people in that place. Amen? 
I mean, again, the question, would you want to go to heaven if Christ wasn't there? And I hope you quickly would say no, because that's what makes heaven heaven. God will act on his saving promises. And this is seen at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I seen back in Psalm 32, and it was a long time ago, but in Psalm 32, blessing and deliverance, forgiveness go together. Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He blesses us with salvation. So he fights for us and protects us, according to Psalm 115. The God who is faithful, sovereign, and all-powerful fights for us and protects us. He blesses us. Thirdly, he gives us an inheritance. Verse 16, the earth he has given to the children of man. Now, place, everybody say place. As like, this is a place. Lufkin is a place. Your home is a place. The United States is a place. Place is a huge theme throughout the scriptures. God is concerned with creating a sacred holy place for his sacred holy people that the sacred holy God can dwell with therein. And I want to, man, this is the kind of stuff I dig. Like, you see these big themes in Scripture. Um, I want to quickly trace this theme from Genesis to Revelation in about two minutes. Genesis 1.28. So the, the stewardship of grace was begun at creation. And God blessed them, who? Adam and Eve. And said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The garden was God's sacred place for his people. And Adam and Eve were called to expand this sacred space by filling the earth with God's image bearers. And as we know, Adam and Eve were banned or kicked out of the garden. Why? Because of their sin. The theme of place appears next with Abraham. This point, Abram. And this was central to God's covenant with Abraham. A place, the promised land, Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And of course, the Exodus is all about God's rescued people going to the promised land. And what makes the promised land so grand? The promise of God's presence. And then in the New Testament, we see that God's spirit-filled community, the church, becomes the new sacred holy place, the place where God dwells. And yet we still await the renewal and restoration of God's good earth. We long for a new heaven and a new earth. We long for the celestial city that will come down from heaven, the city that we read about in Revelation 21, 1-4. Even Abraham looked ahead to this city in faith, a city that the promised land pointed to, Hebrews 11, 9, and 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God's people will inherit the earth, a renewed creation where God's resurrection people will dwell in the city of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Who are Abraham's offspring? Those who belong to Christ. And who's that? That's us. 
Amen? We trust in Jesus. Galatians 3, 7-9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's faith in Christ that makes us children of Abraham and thus fellow heirs. We have an inheritance. Amen? John Piper writes, If you share the faith of Abraham, then you are a fellow heir with him. And the inheritance, Paul said, is the world. There's no God like this. Amen? There's no God like this. Our idols can't do these things. So why trust in them? What will your idols do to you? They will kill you forever. Our idols have failed the test time and time again. Why do we go back to them? It's foolish. They cannot save and they cannot satisfy. So again, can what you bow the knee to save and satisfy? Can it do these things that we just read about in Psalm 115? Well, how does this point to Christ in the gospel? At the cross, Jesus fought the great battle on behalf of God's people, providing us with, again, so what are the promises? What does God do? He fights for and protects us. He blesses us and gives us an inheritance. How does this point to Christ? At the cross, Christ fights for us. He takes our place. He takes the punishment in our place, dying for our sin. Amen? And then he blesses us with forgiveness. Those who trust in him and those who trust in him are promised a forever inheritance. Whoa! Man. Number four. What was number one? Who he is. Number two? The foolishness of not worshiping him. Number three, what he does. Number four, what this God demands. All right, are you ready? What he demands. I think I have seven minutes. I got three minutes. <laughs> okay, I got, that's, that's plenty of time. Three minutes. What he demands. Verse 1, verses 9 to 11, verse 18. All right, according to these verses, we see that the Lord demands, number one, our allegiance. Number two, our confidence or trust, and number three, our worship, okay? This guy who is faithful, sovereign, all-powerful, who fights for us, blesses us, and gives us an inheritance demands what? Our allegiance, our confidence, and our worship. First, our allegiance. I love that word, by the way, allegiance. Verse one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, Give glory. Those who align themselves with the Lord have stepped off the throne. They are no longer concerned with their glory, but His glory. That's Mark 8, 34. This is my son Luke's special verse. We pray it every night. Jesus says, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to be my follower, you've got to give me your allegiance. You've got to deny yourself. You're no longer at the center. I must be. Number two, he demands our confidence, our trust. Verses 9 to 11, O Israel, trust in the Lord. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Three times. Even when things appear to be out of control, we trust the Lord who is sovereign and good. He demands it. Amen? He demands it. Trust is at the heart of our relationship with God. It's not only the starting place of our relationship because we're justified by what? Faith, our relationship continues with what? Faith, trust. Faith, trust, 
is meant to characterize our relationship with God from beginning to end and on into eternity. I didn't mean to make that pose. I'm a little embarrassed about that. <laughs> I'm glad my wife didn't see that. She would have form-tackled me off the stage. Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The third thing that he demands is our worship. Our worship. Verse 18, But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Here's the point I've been trying to make. Such wonderful revelation. I mean, what have we learned about God tonight? He's what? He's faithful. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. What does he do? He fights for his people. He blesses his people. He gives his people a wonderful inheritance. Such wonderful revelation is meant to result in worship. I mean, what is the appropriate response to these things we've learned about God? It's this. It's worship. As we see in verse 17, the dead, those who worship idols, will not praise the Lord. On the other hand, those who have aligned their hearts with the Lord will worship Him how long? How long will that last? Forever. Forever. I think we're going to do it. What might it look like to pray this song? Let's pray it together, and then I'm going to end with a couple of uh, verses from a, a hymn. And I think it'll be appropriate to end that way. But let's, let's pray. This is how you might pray Psalm 115. Verses 1 to 3. Heavenly Father, you are sovereign, and no one or nothing can obstruct your plans. And then verses 4 to 8. Father, please make us aware of any idols in our lives. Give us the wisdom and strength to get rid of anything in our lives that is competing for your affections. Help us to treasure Jesus supremely. And then verses 9 to 18, help us to faithfully give you our allegiance, trust, and worship for you are worthy. To you alone be the glory. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Um, one brother said it really well. Idols are often good things that we make ultimate things, right? I mean, your wife, if you're a husband, your wife can become an idol. Your kids, your job. Those are bad things, but if you make them the ultimate, then it's an idol, and you've got to put it back in its place, right? Because there's only room for one on the throne of our heart. I wanted to read, uh, I want to end with the last stanza. I don't know why we didn't just sing this tonight, but from the famous hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I'll read that, and then we can be dismissed. Take some time, though, uh, after I read this, to greet those around you. Um, ask each other how you're doing, how you can pray for each other, and then commit to doing that this week. Were the whole realm of nature mind that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen and amen.